want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking to you all about Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. So you might be asking, okay, Andrew, have we heard any Broadview Press authors? And the answer is yes. You actually right now are listening to a Broadview Press author. Dr. Jason Holt's book, The Philosophy of Sport, is published by Broadview Press. So make sure that you use Broadview Press's exclusive Ivory Tower Boiler Room discount code. It is Ivory Tower. Go to broadviewpress.com and order Jason's book, Philosophy of Sport. And if you haven't, make sure that you listen to the spring episode with Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez, who wrote all about sound writing and making your own audio projects, including how to make podcasts, which I know a lot of you out there ask me about how to make your own podcasts. Listen to that episode from the spring. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock in the winter, he talked all about pop culture for beginners and also about how to teach composition. And he uses this really fun horror gothic metaphor of being a mad scientist in the composition classroom. And in the fall, yes, the university season is upon us soon. Dr. Ann Stevens talked about literary theory and criticism and dissects what it does literary theory actually mean. I love Broadview Press. It means so much to have them as a sponsor here. And like I said, use that exclusive 20% off code Ivory Tower for all of your literature orders broadviewpress.com follow them on instagram and can't wait for you all to hear the next broadview press interview and we are back welcome everyone to part two of my conversation with dr jason holt who recently published a new edition of The Philosophy of Sport from Broadview Press. So if you haven't listened to part one, you need to listen because you are missing out on such a nuanced conversation about why a philosopher like Jason would be so drawn to sporting and athletic culture. And what does that mean when you start to philosophize, I love that <laughs> verb, uh, all about sports. So. I left you on the edge of your seats, and I'm about to play a short clip of the end of our part one conversation, just so you have it in your head right now, and you can remember, oh, yes, that's right. That's where they ended together. So Jason's about to get into, as you can see from the title, a whole discussion about the ethics of gender, sexuality, especially transgender athletes, the LGBTQ community in sports. Um, what does it mean to be out and gay in professional 
athletics and leagues in um, culture right now for sports. So there's so much that Jason gets into with me. I'm going to have you all listen to the end of our part one conversation. It's about a minute and a half, and then we're going to jump right into part two. I hope you all are enjoying this episode and enjoy the rest of the conversation. You brought up ethics, and I'm not going to let it go because I think there's so many essays in philosophy of sport in the collection that are controversial, are um, definitely timely, are important questions, especially now when it comes to the inclusion of transgender athletes, which has been so polarizing. Um, but I think it's where we need philosophers like you, Jason. We need those from the humanities who aren't being turned to. And I feel like that is a lack in terms of these professional organizations. Like, why aren't they turning to philosophers to look into the ethics issues? And it can't, like, it, it's not an either or. Like, I feel like we're in this either or. Like, either transgender athletes, like, part blanche, go into a men's or a women's team, which again, we have binary gender teams. Uh, so that's a question about how are the binary gender teams working right now? Um, or do they go form their own team as a transgender team? But it's like, why are these our options? I've, I find that there's not a lot of imagination happening, in my opinion. I agree. Part of the problem, at least when it comes to transgender athlete inclusion, is that no one seems to have a really good, plausible idea. Uh, just to back up a little bit, yeah. sport ethics is the way in for most people to the philosophy of sport generally. So if people think philosophy of sport doesn't really make sense, we'll think, okay, sport ethics, is it right or wrong to ban these substances? What's wrong with cheating? What kinds of cheating might not be so bad, et cetera? Um, mm. Why philosophers are being ignored by institutions is that institutions are often about something other than the welfare of those who feed into what generates income for them. You know, the NFL doesn't really care about CTE, right? Mm. I mean, that that's a very cynical view, but it's a common view. With the case of transgender inclusion, there seems to be a real conflict between the idea that people who want to participate in sport, everyone should be able to participate. And this, of course, includes transgender athletes, but everyone who competes also has a right to compete in fair contests. And there's this concern that allowing trans women into traditionally cis women, exclusive female sports, at least some sports, not all, uh, more of the masculine sports and not the feminine sports. And that's an interesting wrinkle we can get into would be unfair. Now, I'm not saying it is, but you can see where the concern comes from. But there's this conflict here because inclusivity is important. Uh, fairness, and from a certain perspective, fairness for the protected women's classes is important too. And it's not clear how to sort that out. Now, conceptually, it's not clear what we should do, but there are various proposals to the effect that mixed competition 
formats might be appropriate. And this is just a very artificial example that I think might be in the second edition of the book. So if you take something like a combat sport, we have divisions, we have sex divisions, we have weight class divisions, we have experience level divisions, especially when we're talking about martial arts tournaments. Uh, I've recently started taking Taekwondo. They're not going to put me up against the black belt, but other now intermediate practitioners. So in a combat sport, there might be room to develop the right sort of blend. So in MMA, it could be the case that you have a competition class involving a flyweight cis man that's 125 pounds, mm. let's say a featherweight cis woman that's 145 pounds, so 20 pounds heavier, and maybe a bantamweight trans woman that's 135 pounds. It's a very artificial example, but a slightly lighter cis man, a slightly heavier cis woman, and then in between a trans woman, that might be the sort of setup for a competition class that would be fair and allow inclusion of trans athletes, which is hugely important, obviously, but also respect the concerns for protected classes for women. Uh, that is not even really the beginning of an answer, but it does get at the idea that if we have a multi-factor competition class structure in place, that might allow us to tick most of the boxes. Well, and what you're demonstrating is the importance of an empathetic an empathy based um analysis and like to me that's what we're missing here is and like that's where the humanities you know you hear all the time um how are arts and culture how does it uh you know change the landscape in society and it's like well it's at the heart of empathy it's at the heart of emotions and that i hope that there's more of a turn to these inquiries of okay open like once you're open to what well, we need inclusion that's the first step is there needs to be an acceptance and right now there's still an ostracized an ostracized um element to it which i don't agree with i know you don't and i think once we move past that and there are needs I mean, there's also the question to be asked of, well, how about women who want to enter into football, which still hasn't been addressed? Or my cousin, I'll shout her out because she told me this. I was so proud and excited when Violet, she was the only woman on her wrestling team. Very cool. And yeah, it's cool. But again... Like, I think these questions are so important of, okay, well, how do you support a woman who enters into a wrestling space or a football space? Yeah, it, that's an interestingly different kind of case, because just to get back to the weight class analogy, nothing prevents a lighter fighter in a combat sport from fighting up a weight class. Mm. They are, however, protected from having to fight those at a heavier weight class. So... 
there is no barrier in a traditionally masculine sport. Of course, there's social barriers. Nothing should prevent a female from wanting to compete in a usually exclusively male sport, like, as you say, football. That's totally fine. But if there were, but you see, going the other way, it wouldn't work because that would be like the heavier weight class fighting down. But the idea that it's somehow wrong to allow women to compete in those sports is is just, you know, that that's just old patriarchal, silly thinking. Yeah. I mean, well, and and I, and yeah. and you can admire people like your. Did you say your cousin? Cousin. Mm -hmm. Cousin. Uh, for doing that sort of thing, because that's important for not only as far as inclusion goes, but also for trying to smash those ridiculous stereotypes that we shouldn't have anymore. Yeah, well, and I'm so glad like you're drawing. These are different scenarios and there would be a different approach to try to um, find a solution or offer a solution, I should say, or offer an interpretive way of, you know, a path of inclusivity or even just acceptance. And I mean, what, how do you weigh in on what I love is as your philosophical mind, Jason, it's not about, um, you know, how you weigh in personally, but like you're already trying to find different approaches to interpret and to offer a response to these questions, which is, you know, just so welcoming. And I enjoy this thought experience with you. Um, you. But another really, I would say it's probably not as prescient right now in the news as transgender athletes, but I do think it is extremely important, which is, Questions around are gendered sports necessary? I don't want to say necessary because I get feel like it gets framed like that. But is there a way to have quote unquote um, gender neutral sporting scenarios? Like, can you have swimming teams where you can have those who are, you know, men, women? those who are non-binary, who all are on the same team. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics, that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating like using Grindr as a social phenomenon or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. 
Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnad breaking the gay code in art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And there are different ways you can do this, and it depends on the sport and it depends on the athletes. But so there are various mixed sport possibilities, right? You have mixed doubles in tennis, for instance. Mm-hmm. You might have uh, mixed relays in swimming. So you have an IM and two of the swimmers have to be women, two have to be men. And we're not talking about trans athletes or intersex cases yet, but that's one one area. There are also dependent on the type of sport, because some in some sports, men appear to have definite physiological advantage. In other sports, women do. I mean, men don't even do the balance beam in gymnastics, right? Because, you know, women have hegemony there. So designing new sports, but also focusing on old sports where you don't get that sort of advantage either way. So equestrian events, for instance, Mm -hmm. there's no advantage either way. Um, You could argue that various target shooting sports shouldn't be divided by sex. So there are lots of unisex sports out there. But even when it comes to, say, something like swimming, There's a certain point when it comes to endurance swimming where women catch up with and even take over from men. And this goes for running too, or at least where the male advantage is reduced to effective zero, if not actually overcome because of those physiological differences that advantage men in less demanding endurance sports. So if we focus more on changing sports to that, ultra marathoning is an example here then it becomes much more interesting. So I'm certainly not the first philosopher to suggest this. Jane English, way back in the, I think, late 70s, early 80s, suggested that one way to get gender equity or equality, she was talking about equality at the time, in sport is to create new sports where both sexes have comparable potential where neither sex has an obvious advantage and that's great we should be creating new sports or we should be modifying the sports that exist 
so that these advantages, or, or at least in many cases, so that these advantages aren't as important. Yeah. Well, and what is that Olympic sport? Because now I'm thinking, like I was trying to wrap my mind around, are there mixed gender sports? But in the Olympics, there is that um, on the ice. What is the one where- Curling? Curling. Yes. I think yeah. that's mixed yeah. gender. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's definitely a case where, I mean, sometimes you do have men's teams and women's teams, but I mean, there, there's nothing inherently masculine or feminine, and there's no obvious physiological advantage either way when it comes to curling or other precision sports, riflery, darts, mm -hmm. uh, billiards, what have you. Well, but this is where you're offering so much imaginative possibility. And this is what I hope everyone is starting to um embrace is it does take that leap of oh okay let's try it and that's where the olympics or right it all comes down to corporatization and dollars and yeah. um like why i don't remember mixed um like a mixed gender tennis match in olympics Oof. i know there are mixed doubles events uh it's interesting that they're the mixed doubles and the men's and women's doubles tend not to be as popular as the singles, which is interesting, men or women. And that's certainly curious. But if you think of other cases, so figure skating, whenever you have pairs or an ice dance team, you invariably have one of each. But again, maybe that's wrong too. Maybe that should be open to two men or two women. Yeah, they started to do that in ballroom dancing. Like now they're same sex pairs. And I mean, they, right? Yeah. And Dancing with the Stars has done it. And it, it takes. But they were, dance culture was very resistant to that for a whole long time. Yeah. But well, and to... talk. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, and um, I studied ballet when I was younger and talk about, even though people, assume that the men in ballet there's a queer acceptance actually when it comes to what's on the stage it's not true like especially with balanchine and his style um it was male female centered on couples like there it wasn't really an opportunity for same-sex uh pairing huh, in ballet. that's interesting okay so including queer dancers is one thing but yes. presenting queer narratives in dance another okay yeah i get yeah. that they were they've started there started to be more of that approach especially from what i've seen um with newer choreographers um well it's so, about time it's about yeah. time yeah well and a lot of choreographers in ballet are actually men and there's not a lot of female choreographers which is a whole other dynamic Right. I um, mean, there, there's some prominent females in the history of dance choreography, but not nearly as many. And yeah. To... Well, then there's the code of personality with Chick like Balanchine. And yes. Um, and the fact that ballet is really unhealthy for a lot of people to participate in. I mean, talk mm -hmm. about injuries. Yes. Yes. Well, do you have another 10 minutes? Is that OK, Jason? Absolutely. And for everyone out there, I did find 
It's actually fascinating, the uh, etymology of sport. It actually comes from old French in the 1300s. And it was despoir, which meet, um, or despoir, uh, which meant pleasant pastime or leisure. So that's that the base. That doesn't surprise me because when you look at early English uses of the term in Shakespeare, for instance, it seems to be a synonym for fun and games or also a euphemism for sex. But of course, mm -hmm. sex as sport as fun, of course it would be. So yeah, yeah well, that, sex that and eroticism sense. is like gymnos actually meant nude. And mm -hmm. it was because the Olympics were in the nude. Yes. In ancient Greek. Oh, male, the male athletes. I should be very specific here. Yeah. What the Olympics meant then. Right. Um, but citizens, male citizens in ancient Greek culture. Um, well, and do you know why they were in the nude? Was that just because? Was that an aesthetic that was regaled in ancient Greek culture? I'm not entirely sure. I, I'm not a historian of sport. But my guess is that the answer is lost in the mists of time. But there must have been an aesthetic component. Obviously, as you know, there's a, a homoerotic component. It's partly the culture. It's partly the fact that you would have to strip down at least to a significant degree to engage in certain activities um, to facilitate certain extensions and flexions and so on. So you could see that just being the extreme, right? If mm. less clothing is better, then best must be none at all. Mm. Well, and right, their bodies become the spectacle too. Like this, well, it reminds me of bodybuilder culture and the physique mm -hmm. magazines. And I mean, who were the major consumers of 70s physique magazines? Well, it's not surprising. They were gay by men. Just yep. like Playgirl. I mean, sure. Yeah. So it, but it's, it's the conundrum. Like if I was writing, I'm not saying I'm doing this right. I've just finished my dissertation. So let me get that out into the ether, Jason. But <laughs> okay. I've always been fascinating of doing like a, um, like homoerotic gym text, or I feel like there's so much that could be tapped into, into, oh, yeah homoerotic sports and especially that gym culture and the like gym bro phenomenon um or even the derogatory meathead for example is really all about almost this narcissist mythological view of the male body or like comparing yourselves to other men but at the same time the most contact sports like football, um, for example, tended to have the more homophobic culture around them, but not in the lock. Like it was all coded homophobia because of the homoerotic touch. I mean, it's just fascinating. I feel like there's so many questions there. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? 
then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So he's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime in Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real-life female poisoners. So... Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. 
There are. And I mean, even more pronounced than high level football, think mixed martial arts. I mm. mean, the homoerotic elements there and how the men, but not the women, tend to be closeted is really interesting. Um, yeah, martial arts culture, fascinating. One thing the ancient Greeks had on us, though, is that at least if we believe the learned accounts, because developing the body, and this feeds into the bodybuilding culture, as you mentioned, was seen as a component of a well-lived life, the built body was a physical expression of the person's virtue. So the musculature, the, the cut physique is seen as a sign, a benchmark of the virtue of the subject. And you can see that when all of this practice comes together. So yes, you spend time in your gymnasium, but you also engage in philosophical discourse with Socrates and so on and so forth. Now, a lot of contemporary culture has lost that, but I do note that this was tapped into back in 80s action films by notably muscular physiques. And I'm thinking here, this may have started with Bruce Lee, but in the 80s, we get people like Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and yeah. Jean-Claude Van Damme, where cinematically the built physique is a sign, a symbol of the character's virtue. It's not irrelevant. Stallone having a beautiful built body in the Rocky films or his Rambo, that's not accidental. This feeds into our tendency to respond more intensely to almost caricature-like stimuli. So Stallone is a better symbol of virtue or Jean-Claude Van Damme in Bloodsport. Love that movie, by the way. Mm -hmm. Because of this connection, and it's it's really interesting. Anyway, I don't want to get lost. No, I love it. No, no, it's these are really helpful. I always say the visual, even in my work, I always turn to paintings when it comes to homoeroticism, because I do think you need to latch on to the visual to understand a highly theoretical concept, because then you can just get lost in the sauce, uh, which yep. isn't something I don't want to do with my writers. And um but yeah, I mean, now I just want to scream out when I'm at the gym. Gymnos means nude. That should be the book title. <laughs> if anyone steals that from me, I need Hey, <laughs> hey you staked a claim to it here. I, I, I think did. I think a, it would be a good title. Um, that's a great title. Yeah, well, an erotic philosophers, I mean, have such an intersection, I'm sure. They do with porn studies, with gender studies, Um you know, I'll have to now like do a search. Like if you have any recommendations, Jason, just because I'm not sure where the erotic, I mean, the erotic, you could argue, is it imbued in every work, like you said, with uh, how sports was used in old English uh, with sexual puns. But yeah, if you have a list, let me know. Uh, I'm really not expert in that field, but I think there's a lot of good work that could be done, especially if you overlap with philosophy at all, because there are philosophers who work in those areas, but they tend not to link it to sport or physical culture or depictions mm -hmm. either in high art or popular art. Yeah. So I'm even yeah, thinking, write like, the book, write the book. Okay. I will. No, I think it's, it's, an auto theoretical 
turn, like that type of work, which I think in philosophy, there is a lot of auto theory. So the mix of the memoir with the theory um, and your scholarship and subjectivity. I think it is important that we have more studies like that in alongside of the quote unquote traditional, if you want to call it traditional, but you know, the quote unquote analyses that there's also creative experiments. And I do think, um, you know, as we're turning to the end of our time, Jason, um, there's so much that you've brought up here of work that continues that hasn't been addressed. Like there's, this is a really new flourishing field, philosophy of sport, but even these questions that are asked. And, you know, we've briefly touched the surface of the water here. Um, and yeah, I'm just so thankful that you came here, that we've like had so many um, moments of just trying to um, unpack, so to speak, all of these dilemmas, you might want to call them, or just ethical questions that are so timely right now. I've enjoyed it too, and it's been great. And just, just to give a hint of where philosophy of sport might go from here, I think a lot of interesting work will lie not within philosophy of sport in the future, but in connecting issues in the philosophy of sport to other cognate areas like the philosophy of dance and martial arts and that sort of thing. And that's where I think I'm headed now. I've recently done some work on martial arts and aesthetics and sport, and I hope others follow me in that direction. Uh, it's exciting. Well, and I think that there's so much that you've offered here of what possibilities exist. But I don't know, you've inspired me, Jason, definitely with like my creativity and academic intrigues. That's um, wonderful. Thank you. That's very gratifying. No, it's true. Well, and everyone listening, I'm going to send this to all my fitness friends, like, because there's such an accessibility here. And that to me is that pulling back the curtain of, don't be afraid of the term philosophy, the study of knowledge. Like, that's what it is. It's the study, in, an intense study of a subject, right? Like, it could be the intense study of what it means for me to have all these books behind me, <laughs> right? But it's that inquiry, like, just being uh, curious of finding an answer. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Jason. And everyone out there, please you know, get your hands on Philosophy of Sport um, by Broadview Press. Um, I have the link in our show notes here. You get 20% off with the code Ivory Tower. So that's exciting. And already this is, you know, what I love about Broadview Press is their price point is always accessible, which you can't say about academic publishing sometimes. Uh, so, you know, that's why I turned to interlibrary loans. Um, but yeah, thank you, Jason. I can't wait to continue to be in touch. And, you know, everyone out there, if you also know um, other philosophers who I have to bring on, let me know. Um, especially, you know, now erotic philosophers. I feel I'm having some of those conversations in literature fields. But, um, 
yeah, they're out there. I mean, Michelle Foucault is one of many. Um, okay, thank you, Jason. And bye to everyone out there. And, you know, have a good day, Jason. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure. I hope we can continue the conversation. Yes, definitely. Okay. And on that note, everyone, get out there and, you know, get your sporting uh, strategies on in whatever way you imagine that to be. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok too. Remember our TikTok. That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video interviews are on our Patreon. All of our bonus episodes are on Patreon. And it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes. And also, it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So. Without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now.